There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club Show. In today's episode, I present you a first psychedelic morning show. A really great collaboration I did with Joe Moore from Psychedelics Today at the Psychedelic Science Conference by MAPS in Denver. To me, it was an incredible joint venture of two podcasts in the psychedelic space, a community service at the same time, actually at a very early time of the day, like 7.30, but we tried to keep it fun, trying to talk about the weather and coffee like you do in a morning show, while not forgetting drugs and psychedelics. In our second episode... I think the topics were a little different on the day after, the first day. <laughs> a second episode, I think, is really insightful. And watch out for new ideas and new approaches in psychedelics presented by these amazing guests. Our first guest this time was Tommaso Barba, PhD candidate at the Center for Psychedelic Research at Imperial College in London. And he talked about sex and psychedelics. I mean, I'm sure you're interested in that. And then there was Bob Wald, founder of Clusterbuster, a really interesting and very passionate advocacy group for people suffering from cluster headaches. Bob was talking about how psychedelics can play a big part in the healing of such cluster headaches. And then we had Alison Hoots, amazing attorney at Hoots Law Practices and Advocate, president of Sacred Plant Alliance and an expert in how to open a church if you're interested in yeah, running a psychedelic church in America. So, I mean, we could go on and on, but it was an incredible bunch of people from 7.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. And I hope we can come back soon with this kind of morning show to you guys. And also come back to you with the podcast in a very new costume. I would say costume is a good word, kind of starting in early September, but more on this in our newsletter and more on this on a very special podcast episode after this one. Enjoy the show. So I'm really excited for this morning show, the MAPS morning show part two. So I'm Joe Moore, CEO, co-founder of Psychedelics Today. I'm Anne Philippi, founder of the New Health Club. Sorry, I'm looking at you like this, <laughs> looking at my phone at the same time. So, um, but we have incredible guests here this morning. So maybe 
Yeah, we are joined today by two uh, really serious pioneers in the psychedelic and pain space. Bob Wold has been active in uh, psychedelics and pain for 25 years with Cluster Busters, which is extraordinary, and wait to hear these stories. And also Court Wing here, who has uh, quite the robust career and now is a leading expert on psychedelics and pain. Some say he knows the most. <laughs> so thank you all for making it out this morning uh, and our slightly late start due to, we didn't realize it uh, opened at 8 a.m. today. So thank you all for being here so early and on time. So uh, how are you guys enjoying the event so far? I'm enjoying it uh, very much. It's, uh, this thing has really <clears throat> grown over the years. So I've watched it grow from the first one to this. So <clears throat> there's a lot of great people here. You're just telling us about Rick's small office in Sarasota earlier. It's really a house in the suburbs. Yeah, but this is probably I don't even know anymore. Decades, you know, fly by. So 20 years, 25 years ago, Maps office was in Sarasota, Florida, and that just happened to be the city that I would take my family to to vacation every year. And so I found um, where. I got the address for MAP's office in Sarasota, and I set an appointment to see Rick and drove over there and found a little house in the middle of a little neighborhood in Sarasota and walked in. The, uh, the doors were wide open and, you know, airing the whole house out, and uh, Rick was there, so I sat down in his office kitchen, and we just chatted for a while, and then uh, two of his employees came in because they had just spent the morning at the beach and we're coming into work bringing pizzas in, um, wearing their bathing suits and saying hello and getting to work. What a world. <laughs> and Court, <laughs> uh, how are you doing so far? What are you enjoying? Well, by far, seeing how many people are coming together around psychedelics and pain. Uh, yesterday we had the launch of the Psychedelics and Pain Association, which was formed with the great participation and collaboration with Clusterbusters and with Psychedelics Today and my company, Remap Therapeutics. Uh, but the, the most important thing was at our nicely sized event, 50 people showed up, around half the researchers in the world in psychedelics and chronic pain were there, and the sense of excitement is palpable. Uh, this is something that is coming. Uh, there's no way to stop this. Once we see these medications released for psychiatric conditions at large within the general public and populace, uh, we'll start to see lateral benefits emerging for chronic pain as well as psychiatric conditions, and people will start talking to their relatives and friends and there'll be no stopping it. So we need to get prepared now. Now is the time to start enforcing, I'm sorry, introducing, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I am sorry. Now is the time to introduce and strongly recommend best evidence-informed practices from neurorehabilitation as well as from uh, classical clinical psychedelic practices as well as those that have been propagated and uh, proved within the underground. So. Um, there's, there's a huge need for this. So, but it, having a venue like this on the national stage, uh, it's, it's, it's vital for us to get this out there. Love that vital word. So 
And um, why do you think, especially the pain topic and psychedelics, at least in Europe, it seems like still kind of under the radar? So it, it's still kind of everything about like treatment-resistant depression and mental health topics. But why do you think the pain topic takes longer to bring into public, like in, in, into the public? Well, I'll attempt to answer this. Um, I don't know why, but that is the most frustrating question that I have. Um, and I have asked around, because there, there is a lot of research going on um, regarding psychedelics and pain, but it's rarely talked about, um, which is one of the reasons why we formed this association. So because at every one of these events where psychedelic uh, therapy is discussed, we need to do our best to get on a stage and with a microphone and talk about psychedelics and pain because there are, you know, worldwide hundreds of millions of people living with chronic pain uh, with very little to be able to treat it with and, very, uh, and a lot of different conditions. <clears throat> a, a big part of why we need to get this word out to everybody is that with all of these um, <clears throat> facilities opening, opening up that are treating mental health disorders or conditions, um, as soon as all of these pain patients find out that there is a clinic down the road that can treat something, I mean, they don't even care what it is that they're treating, but if they find out that they can get psilocybin um, at this clinic, they're going to be knocking on their door. So it's sort of a warning to all of these therapists that are working there that they really need to know something about how to treat pain, which is very different from treating mental health conditions, because you're going to have people coming in there begging you to give them psilocybin to treat their cluster headaches or whatever else it is that they're suffering from. Um, and, you know, we, we are like a second wave with the pain coming behind mental health conditions. and. Everybody really needs to know what's going on because there are so many people in need. So, Speaking in defense of research in Europe, uh, both Maastricht University as well as Imperial College have been actively pursuing research and really broadening the scope of data that's available for uh, companies and individuals like myself. There is so much good data going on out there showing large effect sizes against multiple types of chronic pain, usually conditions of central sensitization. And also the Beckley Foundation has also been very generously and actively pursuing uh, funding for that research. And I, I would also just like to mention with the launch of the Psychedelic and Pain Association, uh, a huge, huge debt of gratitude we have to the River Sticks Foundation. Um, they've given us our initial seed funding and it's made just a vast, vast difference. And uh, the medical director, Magli Breke, at uh, River Sticks Foundation has been instrumental, instrumental in getting this launched and helping us organize and prepare for this conference. So uh, just uh, really a huge debt of gratitude to them. But it's, it's one of those things where this type of pain, the general populace does not have a reference in their life for it in, unless they are very close to someone with this type of pain. It is at the margins of human experience. It is so severe, but often it's an orphan condition. You look at something like 
cluster headache prevalence. You look at something like chronic regional pain prevalence, right? You don't know too many people with that condition, but they're there. In the medical world, they are known, but not often experienced, right? More often than not, people are going to be talking about like a, a very common neurological uh, debilitation condition like, say, migraines, right? I think it's the second most common cause of neurological disability. Yeah, with, with migraine, there are about 40 million people living in the United States with migraine. Um, they're not all chronic, but they range anywhere from, you know, episodic and once or twice a month to chronic daily migraines, debilitating pain. Um, and, um, yeah, there's, so there's a, a lot of people that c could be helped with psychedelics uh, because there are very few treatments that work and people end up on five or six different medications trying to survive. So um, that's one really large patient group that, that uh, needs help, so. Yeah, and there's so much there. Um, so I guess, uh, what's the best data or what, what do you have to kind of lean on as a reference point data-wise when you're making the argument for LSD for mushrooms? So the, all the data we have is all through citizen science and cluster busters collecting all this data for the last 25 years and have um, re refined the treatment regimen um, over the, over the years to take a look to see how often people need the dose, um, how large of a dose is needed, and, um, you know, are you able to get two months worth of pain-free time from one dose, or are you able to get six months, or is it just every, you know, three weeks you may need a small dose? <clears throat> At least with headache disorders, we found that um, People do not need um, large doses of psychedelics. Microdosing usually doesn't work, although it can be helpful in maintaining a pain-free state. But um, as an example, for migraines and clusters, the starting dose is about between a gram and a gram and a half of dried cubensis mushrooms. Um, and at, at those doses, they are very safely done at home with their caregiver. They don't need to be in a therapist's office. They don't need to be watched over by two therapists for eight hours. Um, and they need their medication when they need it. And not when, you know, they can get an appointment to, to get in and get it. And um, <clears throat> an interesting thing that we found with, with the dosing for headache disorders was even at these lower doses, um, people are able to treat their resulting post-traumatic stress disorder that comes from their chronic pain condition um, with those doses and with just talking to their caregiver. <clears throat> so some 50-year-old male who has had you know, cluster headaches for 25 years and um, he, he started building a family um, in the early stages or just before his clusters may have started. Um, <clears throat> clusters are a very isolating disorder, so most of the time those patients hide immediately. As soon as they feel a cluster attack coming on, they will run to another room um, until the pain is gone because they don't want 
their loved ones to see how they're suffering. Um, so as soon as they're in that pain, they're going to hide. And then they don't, certainly don't want to talk about it to anybody else if they're at a party and have to excuse themselves. <clears throat> so they really kind of hide their pain. So when you do that for 20 years, trying to save a marriage and raise a family, um, that first psilocybin dose um, is really um, in indescribable as far as how much it can help these people because they'll sit there and talk to their wife or their husband about the last 20 years and say the things they've never been able to say before to tell them how, how sorry they feel for how, having let down the family and finding out that their wife doesn't feel that they've let down the family. Um, so, you know, that four or six hours that they're actually able to talk to somebody that cares about them um, really plays a big part in, in fixing their mental health also. Thanks for that, Bob. Um, and we have a little bit of time left, but um, Corey, I kind of want you to explain to us, um, well, <laughs> Can you give us, in a brief moment, your remission story from chronic pain? Sure. So I was a study trial participant in NYU's psilocybin trial for major depressive disorder in March of 2020. Uh, I had a five-year episode of increasingly tre treatment-resistant depression um, that was starting to be non-responsive. I got into the study. Within eight hours, I was in complete remission. but I also have a long background in pain and performance treatment, and secretly, I was also a chronic pain sufferer, moderate level chronic musculoskeletal pain that was non-responsive to intervention. At the end of the day, I was in complete remission from chronic pain as well. In fact, I started having neurological revisioning right there on the treatment couch. Um, because I was, uh, I'm very fortunate to have been uh, certified through a system called Z Health, which has a fairly advanced uh, education in applied neurophysiology. I was able to identify the mechanisms of action in real time, and I had positive references for the activity that was going on in my body, so it was non-threatening. Um, like I was going through some fairly intensive tremoring, but that's something that we're actually seeing as an emerging marker for positive revisioning, like among people uh, with, say, spinal cord injuries, peripheral neuropathy, and things like that. So, but um, the next day I was lying there, and I thought to myself, you know, with this strong a visual field interaction and this much neuroplasticity occurring, why couldn't you combine this with mirror box therapy for phantom limb pain. Like, and it was just like straight out of the blue. And I thought, okay, I've, I've completely discovered a whole new treatment approach here. Within two months, <laughs> um, Dr. Jill Castellanos and et al. at PHRI at UC San Diego released a position paper, uh, Chronic Pain and Psychedelics, a Review and Proposed Mechanism of Action. And buried within it was a case study of V.S. Ramachandran and Albert Lin treating intractable phantom limb pain with mirror box therapy and high-dose psilocybin. And V.S. Ramachandran is the neuroscientist who invented uh, mirror box therapy. So it was just, it was shocking. Also, um, I just want to highlight this, uh, uh, 10 days after 
my dosing session, NYC went on lockdown for the pandemic, I cannot imagine what 2020 would have been like if I had received the placebo. I was inside uh, with my two very young boys, you know, they're doing their telelearning, my entire industry shut down, I had nothing to do but go online and research, and within two weeks I found a reference to a 1962 study by Kuromaru in uh, Japan testing low-dose LSD for phantom limb pain. This has been around for an incredibly long time. And I, I just want to, I want to emphasize, we don't have to prove that psychedelics are effective for treating chronic pain. We have to establish it's already been proven. Y'all should check out the video um, of the Psychedelics in Pain launch. Uh, it should be up on YouTube pretty soon, probably on Psychedelics Today. It's amazing. But I have one, one very interesting thing you said earlier, which is a very interesting expression. Can you talk a little bit about this medication fatigue? Because I feel like this is almost like an, something, a new condition in itself that... Like too many drugs, not enough relief. Yeah, yeah, and then also like you, you are on your eighth or ninth medication and this alone makes you already getting into a depression. This is a very interesting new topic to me. Well, I'll just touch on that a, a little bit. If, if um, as far as seeing what my community goes through, I mean, um, the first 20 years I had cluster headaches before discovering LSD and psilocybin, I had tried over 70 different prescription medications. One of the prescription medications was actually uh, cocaine. Um, so yeah, I was able to get a prescription for that. Um, but none of so them. You're the first person I know to ever have that. Yeah, yes. So, and there are some times when I kind of wish that I could get that prescription again, but uh, especially long nights uh, at, yeah, here. So, um, but none of them worked. The only thing that worked about those medications was um, it would give me one more month or a couple of weeks, anyways, of hope that something, that they've given me something else that might actually help. <clears throat> and so I would give it a little bit of time to build up in my system and then determine whether or not it was helping or not. And then I would go in for my next appointment the following month and, and tell the doctor that it wasn't working or that it may be working, I don't know, maybe 5% relief in pain. So if you get any relief at all, you don't want to lose that. So the doctor wants to give you something else to try, but you don't want to stop the one that you're on that's giving you the 5% that just may be enough to keep you from killing yourself. So um, it's very common for people with cluster headaches and also migraine to keep building on those prescriptions. At one point, I, I came out of an uh, inpatient program on 15 different prescription medications at once uh, to treat my clusters. Um, and that's very common in the headache uh, disorder communities. Fifteen is common? Fifteen, I wouldn't say is common. I mean, the practice yeah. of building and adding on medications is very common. Yeah. It's because people don't want to lose anything that, because, <clears throat> you know, and the, the odds are that those medications aren't helping at all, but you're looking for some kind of a signal that it might be helping a little bit. Um, so you don't want to give that up, and so they end up prescribing another one and adding on to that one, so. 
So um, with our chief scientific officer, uh, Dr. Joel Costanos out at PHRI, um, you know, we have a we have a model of what is going to be our typical patient. Um, you know, it's typically a, a woman who is going to be in her mid-60s or older, has a complex presentation for her chronic pain, meaning she has comorbid conditions. It's not just one thing. It's not just fibromyalgia. You know, it's not just shingles or uh, peripheral neuropathy from diabetes. It's all of them. And typically, they're polypharma, meaning they take multiple conditions, and they have exhausted standard of care approaches. And that's not even default clinicians, because they're limited in what they can offer, or even what they've been introduced to in their knowledge background, right? Um, and so there is a type of medical trauma where they have really, really been trying. So if you look at the uh, case series that was published in Pain Journal, this past September, right, on macro and microdosing psilocybin, we had one person with uh, paraplegia, one person with CRPS, one person with uh, disc degeneration, uh, and two failed laminectomies. That's a type of surgical intervention. All of them had severe radicular pain. All of them had been compliant. Within an hour on macrodoses, their pain level drops to zero. They maintain that, as Bob mentioned earlier, with microdosing with 80% of the pain relief and 50% of the duration. But these people have tried their damnedest to be good patients. And, and often clinicians are also, they're burnt out. They're burnt out because they've been trying their best as well. And so there is a strong, strong desire out there to have research and availability with these compounds. There is so much to tease out. But just on a basic level, just on a basic level, we know, we know that psychedelics are an impact booster for neuro and metaplasticity. And there is compelling evidence, compelling evidence that when you combine them with adjunctive therapy, it makes them far more impactful and enduring. All right. Well. I want to thank you both for being here this morning, getting up early, toughing it out. Yeah, thank Long. you for me too. <laughs> it's a marathon. Well, thanks very much for having us. Uh, you know, grab any chance that we can to uh, have our voices heard and, and spread the word on pain and psychedelics. And just as a final note, I'd like to mention that uh, Remap Therapeutics is hosting the second annual. Uh, psychedelics and Pain Symposium, July 15th and 16th. You can purchase tickets online and you can listen to uh, the top researchers in the world of psychedelics and chronic pain research discussing what they've been doing, what's upcoming, what the results look like, and we'll have two workshops, one specifically for practitioners, one specifically for patients. All right, well, Court Wing and Bob Wald, thank you very much for being here. Looking forward to more. Thanks Thank very you so much. much. Thank, Thank you, you so much. And we'd love to invite Tommaso Barba up. <laughs> right. Now to, to something totally different. Yeah, this is going to be a very different topic. <laughs> but it's going to be excellent. Welcome. Welcome, Welcome. Tommaso. How are you doing? All good. All good. So Early morning. How was your rating on a coffee here as an Italian person? <laughs> I didn't have time to get one <laughs> now, 
but well. Okay, okay. It's not that good. It's not that good. It's not that good. It's very, it's very watery. It's like water with a bit of coffee. Mm -hmm. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, great. So uh, you are doing some really interesting work. Can you give us a very uh, brief overview, and then I'll okay try to tease some threads out. <laughs> So uh, I'm a PhD student at the Center of Psychedelic Research at the Imperial College, and uh, I have quite like diverse research interests. But for this specific conference, I'm uh, presenting on the effects of psychedelics on uh, sexual well-being, and so how uh, either naturalistic psychedelic use and uh, psilocybin therapy for depression impact your sexual life once the effects of psychedelic are finished. So basically. Uh, for weeks after a big experience, do you feel different about your sex life? And this is mostly the you do. focus of my research now. I understood it different. I was like, is this my foot? Or, like, I don't know what this part is. Like, I didn't realize it was the afterglow. Okay. Okay, yeah. Every, everyone, everyone thinks, like, are you, like, doing research on sex on psychedelics? And I'm like, no. Like, not yet. After. <laughs> no, that's interesting. So what, how, can you talk about the, a little bit about the setup of the study, like how you approach it, like uh, to mm -hmm. what people you talk to? So uh, it was kind of like a, a, a secondary study because we did not design a study to test anything like this, but we basically included questions in several other studies that we were already planning. We had this uh, big study for psilocybin for depression compared to classic antidepressants that was led by Robin Cara Harris at Imperial. And uh, he was quite interested in uh, seeing if there was a differential effect of uh, psilocybin-assisted therapy on uh, uh, sexual functioning because SSRIs are known to cause sexual dysfunction in around like 60% of the people that they take them. And even if they uh, get improved in their depression, a lot of times, they report that they're not able to have an orgasm anymore, to uh, connect with their partner anymore, to have uh, an erection anymore. And so, like, it can be pretty complicated if you are in a relationship and you are sexually active and it's, like, one of the causes of, uh, uh, like, premature discontinuation of this medication. And uh, basically, it was found already that psilocybin did not really induce sexual dysfunction. And uh, the next question was, okay, but, like, uh, can, uh, can it be anything on, on the positive side of improvements? And uh, this was never tested in uh, normal previous medical research because uh, there are like no psychiatric drugs on the market that like usually like improve uh, uh, depression and also like improve uh, sexual functioning. And so usually people just look for, for the lack of negative symptoms, but not for the presence of, pres of uh, positive symptoms. And uh, yeah, we asked uh, some questions about the sex life of people, and uh, I would say we found uh, gen overall the psilocybin-induced positive improvements. And, and do you also look, in, look? Do you also look into, let's say, the question if, let's say, a person with depression might have experienced sexual abuse, which is sometimes the result of, mm -hmm. I mean, it results in depression. So in, in what way would you say, I mean, I know you can't predict this right now, but in what way is this resolved also, this trauma, and in what way does it lead to um, kind of a very new idea around your sexuality after a That's, psychedelic experience? Yeah, yeah. That's an amazing question, and unfortunately, 
I don't have the answer because no one tested tested it. But I think like it's it's really really important and like uh, either in depression or PTSD. Like in, uh, if you look at the, uh, the statistics of, of PTSD, like if you experience sexual abuse, uh, you you will have like 30 uh, 35 percent chances of developing PTSD. But uh, especially if you are a female, the chances of developing a full sexual dysfunction as a result of the sexual abuse are as high as 80 percent. And uh, this is because uh, uh, if you experience abuse when you're young, then like you associate anything that has to do with like uh, uh, sexual experience with uh, uh, the trauma, with like uh, anxiety and inhibition, and so like uh, this causes uh, uh, full-on like incapacity of like uh, connect sexually with someone, and in a lot, in, in a lot of time also can lead to re-traumatization because maybe the person with you maybe has even positive intention, but then like you end up being in full uh, flight or flight mode because. Uh, you never experienced anything that is uh, able to like uh, this learn this association, and I think like psychedelics has a, a huge potential to uh, work in this type of cases. So, uh, what what does the clinic model look like for this? Um, is, it, like, is it a certain kind of dispensary, or is it a certain kind of hotel? <laughs> I don't know. Whole new industry coming. So this is, I would say, still like very uh, down the line. Like if we look at like sexual dysfunction as a result of trauma, I can see like uh, uh, MDMA in the future being prescribed for something like this. And uh, I was having a chat with uh, uh, Fede Apache, that is MAPS deputy director last week, that and he said that they're very interested about like. Uh, the potential of MDMA for like either scaffolds therapy and uh, for relationship distress, but there is not a, a DSM diagnosis of uh, relationship distress, so it can be very, uh, it might be a bit complicated to end up like uh, uh, entering MDMA-assisted scaffolds therapy in the healthcare system be because of this, and so it might just be an off-label uh, use of MDMA in the future. But for sexual dysfunction, there is a DSM diagnosis of this. So it could be that uh, in uh, a few years' time, when MDMA is already, is already rolling, that uh, it could end up being prescribed with uh, a specific type of therapy for sexual dysfunction, specifically maybe as a result of trauma. And uh, I would say also psilocybin has an element of this, and classic psychedelics can uh, be uh, used in uh, couples therapy and uh, learn a new term. Uh, well -being. So um, just learn a new term. It's a DSM gated research. So what? What is you have this? to have like a diagnosis in the DSM to like have substantial attention on your projects. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Wild. Yeah, but I mean, this is like the relationship distress. I think it's. Uh, a long-discussed issue, I think, will be included uh, later on uh, at some point. I know also, like, famous uh, couples therapists like Esther Perel, like, she complained quite a lot about the fact that uh, it's not a, a, a diagnosis, and so it's more complicated to get in, in the healthcare system. And this doesn't mean that, like, couples therapy is uh, usually used, but, like, if you want to get reimbursement for your couples therapy, it, it might be very complicated. So if you have money to pay for it, and probably will be the same for MDMA, assisted couple therapy, it will be possible to use as an off-label use, that it means that it's basically prescribed by someone for a reason that is not the one for which is, is mainly approved I mean, and is done all the time in the healthcare system, but it's very difficult to get reimbursement. So, I mean, you also work with Sarah Tilly on a couple of projects, so, and, um, so in what way, I mean, you guys have already a little bit of an insight, in what way do you think 
couples therapy, which we see on Netflix and every other show, couples fighting, oh, this is how couples therapy looks like. In what way will psychedelics disrupt this system of, I mean, uh -huh. it's kind of an old system if you yeah, think about it. Yeah. Yeah, it, I think this is a very new uh, venue of research that uh, we are starting to investigate now. Like after I started to present around this results about sex and psychedelics, I m made contact with really cool people. And uh, one of this is uh, Sarah, that she's a couples therapy and she has a retreat center in the Netherlands in which she used psilocybin with... Uh, she studied with Esther Perel. Uh, yeah, 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 she did some uh, uh, training with SS Peral. And basically, like, uh, what we decided to do is, like, okay, like, you're doing this work that is quite cool, quite edgy, and I, I love it. And uh, let's try to make a collaboration. Let's, try, let's collect data on your, on your couples and see, and see what happens and try to, like, create a very low-cost observational study of uh, psilocybin-assisted couple therapy. And uh, the study is now under ethical approval. It will start uh, recruitment in the next few months, and uh, it will be like linked with the couples that uh, Sarah is treating. And uh, I don't know, like, how psilocybin can work with couples? That's an interesting question, because it doesn't promote like a, the neurochemical feelings of love as uh, uh, MDMA does, because uh, MDMA can really feel like uh, biochemical love in a way and uh, I think this is a, a, a lot of potential for couples that maybe like to chat uh, through the issues and uh, discuss things that normally are quite complex to discuss while classic psychedelics can uh, be more tricky in this context but uh, it doesn't mean that they can they can be combined uh, with a couple focus intervention and then maybe the partners are, are like uh, having the uh, uh, psilocybin experience either alone or, or with their partner but like focusing inwards and this helps uh, basically uh, resolving personal issues and like reflecting about the relationship and, and, and can have a downstream beneficial effects in, uh, in, in the relationship later on. So I think uh, the potential might, uh, might act differently, but I think the long-term effects can be very similar in some situations. Did you make it to the Sex 2.0 workshop in Miami? I went to the Sex and Psychedelics <laughs> panel last year. No, no, was it last year? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. funny you said it. I was very hesitant, but you were very yeah. convincing. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, even this panel, it was a really big panel. It yeah. was like yeah. the yeah. biggest, most sought after, moderated by the woman from the Financial Times, which means there's, again, like it feels like there are a lot of new, almost like you want to say, industries around these topics meaning like investors investing in companies who are specifically looking into this. So, and, uh, but also in terms of like, um, like questions around, like I would say like even new, new questions for, for women arising out of these sex and psychedelics uh -huh. question, like ideas. So in, in what way do you also include in a study, I mean, is it like at the moment just like almost like a neutral couple or is it like gay couples? Heterosexual couples, uh, you know, like it will be mostly like uh, heterosexual relationships, just because uh, Sarah works more with uh, uh, straight couples as of now. But uh, the idea is like expanding and making it uh, more diverse, and I'm particularly interested in this. But I think it it will take time. And uh, it's a very, like, it's a field quite in its infancy, and uh, my PhD is not, like, entirely focused on this. Like, it has a branching that is focused on this, but I will be, like, uh, quite busy in other studies and all that. So let's see how much, like, I can create, like, some knowledge that in the future can be used. And, uh, yeah. Great. Tommaso, anything coming up that you'd like to mention? 
before we wrap here? Uh, just like I think uh, a word about the risks, because I think that like we don't know anything yet, especially from a research side, on the effects of uh, psychedelics uh, and MDMA on uh, relationships. And uh, I think they can be really tricky in a lot of situations. Like MDMA can create feelings of uh, intense love and attachment to maybe someone that is not the right person for you. So if you end up like having an intense psychedelic experience with uh, maybe let's say with MDMA with someone you met for three weeks you might feel oh my god this person is my soulmate and uh, I feel this strong feelings of love that I never felt with anyone but it's just like a neurochemical illusion that in some in some cases can maybe end up like really bonding with an abusive partner and uh, it, can, it can be a really tricky thing to uh, to do and the same with psilocybin I think that psilocybin can create feeling of very intense connection to the point that the people can feel like completely fused together but can also create very strong separation so if you end up having a high psychedelic experience with your partner and you don't really like uh, uh, prepare for it and have the right integration maybe like you can feel extremely uh, uh, disconnected on an emotional point of view and this can maybe d destroy the relationship later on we don't know and we don't know if there is something that predicts this, if maybe like having low relationship satisfaction and no integration might then like end up uh, as a catalyst for the breakup. Or we don't know if it, 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 can, it might be just casual, maybe bad setting setting and all these uh, things that are quite difficult to predict. So yeah, I would say like just caution because I think like if there is anything that can resemble like the famous love portions in like the folkloristic literature. I think MDMA and psychedelics can get really close to this. So like, uh, yeah, it, they need to be used with caution. So we need like an extra study for love portions. <laughs> you have to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating yeah. the yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tommaso, Barbara, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And your talk yeah. is today when? Uh, yeah, I have my talk where I present this data that I uh, discussed briefly here at 4.15 in Four Season okay. Room 4. So, yeah, if you want to pop in, it would be nice. Should. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Tommaso. Let's grab a photo thank real you. quick. And Allison, can you join us up here? Yeah. You're here? And last but not okay. least, Take we're going to have a really fun conversation here. Um, this is one of my favorite topics, actually. <laughs> the <Great>. law. <laughs> I don't usually like the law. We, we appreciate everybody who's going... Here, it's here around between eight and nine. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you all for toughing it out and getting here so early, including you. I really, I really fussed about it, didn't I? What did you do last night? <laughs> I went to Flaming Lips. Uh. Oh, okay. How was it? I should have gone to bed. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was good. I've been to a couple of those Flaming Lips shows. <laughs> yes. Where I should have gone to bed. Yes. <laughs> all right. So, Elsa, where are you from? Where you live now? I live in the Mid-Hudson Valley of New York. Awesome. And you are an attorney specializing in psychedelics, particularly around the religious aspect, or are you all over the place? I'm all over the place. I, I tend to tell people that I work with facilitators on the full spectrum of psychedelics. Um, so whether it's a facilitator doing something underground, you know, trip-sitting, or um, religious facilitation, um, and I also work with CAP practitioners, and I work with PAT, <laughs> Psychedelic Assisted Therapy uh, practitioners, and um, licensed and unlicensed. Uh, and then I also help someone create their entity, inform consent, um, and then yes, sort of my 
my niche is uh, churches. Um, the right to religious exercise under the law, that very gray area. Um, everyone thinks that if they have a church, they're legal. And I'm just going to start by saying you're not. Um, there are only... What does that even mean? Yeah, that's a great right? question. So ostensibly, <laughs> we have a First Amendment here that would grant us the right to things. But apparently, the Constitution, in the words of Terrence, might not be <laughs> worth the hemp it's written on, I think he said. Well, in a way, I think Congress recognized that because in 1993, they passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, to sort of fix it. Um, so the First Amendment grants the right to religious exercise. Uh, there shall be no law that burdens it, um, except uh, in certain instances. Um, and that was sort of the question, is when can that occur? And the courts ended up saying, well, if the law that burdens it is generally applicable, uh, then yes, we can still burden you. So if it doesn't focus on a religious group specifically, um, then sort of you're out of luck. But then in 1993, they passed what they call RIFRA. Um, and that law said, okay, we're going to use the strictest test to evaluate these acts of the government or the law that does infringe religious rights. Um, and that ended up leading us to two cases, which was the UDV case in 2006 and the Santo Daime case in 2009, both of which said that these churches, which were both Brazilian churches, um, that were very much um, clearly churches in the minds of the United States idea of what a church is, a, a mainstream church. So it was easily recognizable, and I think that's why they were so successful in addition to some of the other things. But um, so those churches were granted exemptions from the Controlled Substances Act. Um, and in, Nobody else has. No, since. no one else has. So we have three um, total groups. That's right. Um, <laughs> is this like, is there any religious conversation in Germany right now around uh, getting rights through, to psychedelics through? Not, not really, but I mean like what, what has a little weighed a little way into the conversation is like psychedelics and like faith and psychedelics that Adriana Kurtzer yes. actually created in, in a pandemic, like a Zoom call with all kinds of people in a space who are now like Zach Kamenetz and then Hunt priests, so they were all in this group. So that kind of conversation started a little bit, but um, so how do you, I mean, how do you become like a church maker? So do you <laughs> rubber just pick, stamp, your, right? you pick like, your, your, your substance or then you create a um, church around it? Well, first I like to say I don't I don't create churches, I refine churches. I mean, but somebody comes yes. to you and says, I want but to someone, open yes. a church, kind of. I generally try to work with people who already have a church. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't want to influence someone's religious beliefs from the get-go. I think the idea is you have to develop your beliefs. I'll do practice. that, <laughs> yeah. you need help. Uh, Joe will get a, a referral fee from me, um, but Basically, they come to me, and, and under the law, you are a church as soon as you've organized as a church. You don't have to incorporate, you don't have to do anything fancy. I mean, that's the whole point of separation of church and state, is the government's not supposed to tell you how to do your church. What comes in, though, is if you want to, in the case of 
felony charges um, or there's a, some substantial burden and you want to file a claim, you can use RIFRA, well, depending, that's sort of a longer conversation. You should read the book that I wrote, um, which is released um, through the Shakuna Institute, and it's called Guide to RIFRA and Best Practices for Psychedelic Plant Medicine Churches. And if you want to read 80 pages, you'll learn exactly how to work your church. But So if you wanted protection under the federal RIFRA, state RIFRA, state constitution, um, you really need to be prepared to explain your beliefs and practices in this paradigm using the language that courts would understand. And so that's what I do. I, I help churches articulate their beliefs, establish practices, you know, um, from basically minimizing the government's interest in controlling these substances. So ensuring, well, I, I always don't say ensure, trying to increase the health and safety of participants. Um, that diminishes the government's interest there. And preventing diversion of these substances to non-religious uses. And that's actually as simple as locking your sacrament up. I learned recently how crazy the regulation is for the UDV and Santa Daime, or at least how careful they want to be and how they operate. It's insane the burden they have on them to I stay actually, compliant, I, I thought. I didn't think it was that crazy. I thought it would be much worse. But um, from what I've learned is the DEA just comes every couple of months as an, for an audit, and they check to make sure that they have their sacrament locked up and that they're keeping records on how much was used and only certain people are accessing it. I guess the keeping records is too much <laughs> for me. <laughs> it's yeah. true. Most of the religious practitioners I work with do not want to run a business. <laughs> I've not kept records. But I mean, online. I wonder always, like, is there, it seems to be a need for new churches anyway. I mean, a friend of mine, she ran the Sunday services for Kanye for a while for a million dollars every Sunday. And it was, she said it was full. Like, People really wanted to go to a service on Sunday. Or in yeah. Berlin, people go on a Sunday, they go to Berghain at 12. They go to a nice. mass. And the taxi driver would tell you, oh, you're going I mean, there's to... There's a mass the at Berghain? Well, kind of. The taxi driver would say, oh, you're going to the Sunday mass, like in quota. So the, the, what's interesting to me is that there's a... <laughs> I mean, whatever it, it means Took to you. So, but, but there is, there seems to be a need for new churches, like new celebrations or something, right? I mean, that's interesting to me. There, there are many new churches. They're mostly underground, but I'm talking to a lot of them. Um, I do think what we, I don't know if it's what we need, but what's, what's definitely lacking is, is religious community, spiritual community um, in this society, it seems to me. And I think a lot of people I know in my generation, I'm not going to say how old I am right now, but um, I am going to say that I don't know a lot of religious people, and I think religion has become a sort of difficult word to connect to in a lot of ways. I think some people have been very put off by religion and how it has been given to them in their youth, and, and what's interesting to see is people finding that psychedelics are so inherently spiritual that you know, they're fun, they're therapeutic, they're spiritual all at once. Um, and they're hard, right? <laughs> but I think some people come to religion through psychedelic experience. Um, I was 
speaking to someone yesterday and we, we said, you know, it's interesting that DMT is the, the chemical released in your brain right before you die. And so many people also, you know, at a near death experience find religion. Um, so that connection there, but it's also a time to pause and you're, you're stuck in a space and, and there is this feeling that you're connecting to something otherworldly and, and that is very spiritual. Um, so it makes sense to me that there are religious rituals with psychedelics or other substances um, and it, it's communal, it's communal use. It's an increase of safety in my mind to be together with someone who knows what they're doing, able to really connect with you, especially very experienced religious facilitators. I mean, I, that's sort of one of the most important criteria for me. If, if you haven't been a facilitator, you know, if you just come back from your trip to Peru and now you want to serve medicine, I, that's, you know, I can't start there. Um, but I'd like to see someone five, 10, 15 years experience um, has a community for at least two, 20 years, you know, whatever it is, there I'd, I'd like to work with them to really refine all of their communications to participants and, and filings with the state, you know, to make sure it's all consistent and prepare them to defend themselves. So, um, <laughs> I actually, I've known about you for years now. Um, we've never connected until somewhat recently. Can you can you share? Because this is this is actually kind of a religious topic for me. Um, but let, if you don't want to, I'll tell it. No, I mean, you, I've been talking. You tell it. Well, I received a tweet from you. It was a DM. DM. Yeah, I slid into your DMs. Doesn't happen often. <laughs> um, and you you heard me on the podcast Psychedelic Today talking about. Um, this incredible and I think maximally psychedelic band, Mars Volta. Does anybody know Mars Volta? All right, two, that's good. Rob, no? <laughs> oh, three, yeah, of course. Oh, he's holding the camera, sorry. Yeah, he's working. But um, like, what, it, what is it about Mars Volta or like that, that world that, I, I don't know, I, I treat it religiously, but. Yes. Uh, so, EA wouldn't agree with me. Right. Um, well, first I want to say that the, the ceremonies that I have been in are deeply musical. And, I want, and then going back further, you know, I've been sitting in ceremony with this one particular community since 2015, very committed, changed my life. Now I do this work to protect that work. But I've been using substances to reach non-ordinary state of consciousness since Gosh, I shouldn't say, but yeah, since I was about 17 or 18, and, and it was always at festivals. I was definitely part of the festival circuit, and music, I married a musician, so that really says something, um, but I'm deeply connected to music, and I think I've had some of the most incredible experiences of my life, either on something, listening to something, or just listening to something. You know, I've listened to things and just cried, you know, so, um, yeah, I love connecting over music and um, I love all music, really. Um, but Mars Volta was a favorite. I've seen them a couple times. Right. It's, um, yeah, it's like a ceremony ritual. Like yeah. some of these bands can set it up that way. Some can't. It's fascinating when they can. 
Yeah, and you know, even just like the, the lights that you see at some of these concerts are very much like visuals in a psychedelic experience. So to think that's not related. And what, what is the, I mean, can you ever imagine a TV show about a psychedelic lawyer? Is it that interesting? <laughs> It's pretty interesting. <laughs> Get some great clients and potential Of Allie McBeal for psychedelics. Right. So. I am Allie, so. You could be. Allie, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that just as a lawyer. I mean. Right. I've been meeting some Hollywood types, so it's uh, I mean, happen. I'm, I'm really excited. I, I think there needs to be more discussion around medical screening. We need more assistance from the medical community about these contraindications, um, especially as there are so many new prescriptions, new herbal supplements, you know, what would exclude someone, especially mental health conditions. There are some people who think, you know what, I can work with someone who has, you know, bipolarity, you know, something like that. Let's talk about that real quick. Yeah. So that's one of the harder yeah. ones, actually. So there's actually no clinical data or scientific evidence showing that bipolar folks should not have access. Right. And I've communicated with a lot of people um, who are bipolar. And um, the <laughs> a friend of mine, uh, uh -huh. Erica Rex, she's written for us a few times, um, she calls a psychiatric diagnosis like that your status um, mm -hmm. denigration ceremony. Mm -hmm. so, like how can you become less than in five minutes or less, you know? Um, forever, and we had some friends excluded recently from some retreats. The way they feel after is like horrifying. Right. But there's cool people working on that. Uh, Benjamin There are, Hodge, and um, ICERS is really on that um, in in saying, you know, the question is more: can, is the facilitator experienced enough? Not can the person sit with a mental health condition, but is the facilitator? able to let them sit. It's very, you know, that's, that's deep supportive work. You need to be a, a, like a complete pro, um, a, an expert pro. Um, I imagine there are, are circumstances where it's appropriate. Um, I'm not a doctor, uh, but <laughs> I will say that from a lawyer perspective, you just need to do the screening appropriate to your religious practices, your knowledge base, All of that is, is deeply important because, you know, aside from a religious use analysis, there's also the civil liability aspect, which I, I do have to advise on as well. Um, but, you know, I'm, not, I'm never really the fun conversation in, in the development of the church. I'm always talking about the worst things that can happen. But then I, I got to say, but here's how we can at least prepare for it. Um, Because we didn't say it explicitly, we should probably wrap up in a moment here. Um, churches are not only important because people deserve to be able to have spiritual community, but yes. what we're seeing is that the cost of a lot of these services is going to be really exclusionary and um, difficult for insurance reimbursement. Uh, so religions may offer that access path that a lot of people crucially will need. Yes, but I, I ask that you truly be sincere and experienced. It's not a circumvention method. This is very serious work. Um, and I do think that eventually, there and, and now, there should be collaboration between those two areas, um, sitting in ceremony and then having an integration, um, a, a licensed person with integration experience or someone with just a lot of experience um, who has you know, a skill set that, that is very helpful. They'll all work together. And, and there are going to be therapists who 
have patients who are having a spiritual crisis and then they can you know say this this church is really wonderful you can consider you know a few of these um, i think it all works together and 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 it makes sense you know it's I mean, not one or the other lawyers in a space have become my favorite people because <laughs> it is such a creative conversation always that you have to create like things that don't exist yet and to me this is one of the most interesting things to create I mean, it's stressful sometimes and like strenuous, but so I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. And I do need to plug a little, which is that I'm, I'm also president of Sacred Plan Alliance, which is an association of psychedelic churches. And what we're trying to do is create a safe container for these very experienced church leaders to come together and talk about, you know, what difficulties they're having personally. You know, there's a, a very heavy load in being a spiritual care and religious leader, um, also identifying issues within the community, um, as well as to create accountability for those leaders, um, because where they are underground, there's not a whole lot of recourse for participants when, when they need mediation or support. Um, and so Sacred Plan Alliance is an example of that, where members join, they commit to ethical guidance, and they offer all participants in ceremony a link to an adverse health and ethical reporting form. And we have an ethics committee, and we would then mediate um, and deal with whatever the complaint is appropriately. But we also create education for the public, and I'll be um, speaking about that at our talk today at 10.15, no, 10.30. Um, but it's, it's one of the favorite things that I'm doing right now because um, church leaders need support and the public needs education about this kind of work um, because it can be really beautiful and noble and, and it is essential uh, spiritual identity, spiritual connection, um, I think is really the undercurrent of, of the psychedelic experience. Love it. Well, Allison Hoots, thank you so much for joining thank us you. and sharing. Thank you. I hope everybody Can't comes to your talk. So uh, nice 10 15. Do you know what, what room? 10 30, plant medicine stage. Plant medicine stage, everybody. All right. Thank you all for thank being you. here and joining us for the morning show. See you around. Yes. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club Show. And please follow us on Twitter. Instagram, Facebook, or if you would like to sign up for a newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course, there's also a new health club now, or even better, sign up to a newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon.